How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Side Show Podcast, episode 208. Oh, that was a big clap, Zeke. Thank you. Big sync clap. Explosion. For our season finale. Season finale. Season four, season finale. And guess what, Jake? <laughs> I can already tell the audience right now. We are renewed for season five. I know. Oh, it's very exciting. We're about to enter our fifth year into the podcast. Half a decade. I know. By that logic. It's always, the show it's always... has been running already for two decades. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> no, see, it's bringing it back. There's a, there's a lot of, um. I mean, there's going to be a lot of self-referential stuff this episode. Yeah. For our 208-long, mm. episode-long podcast. Not a lot of white noise. No, we're going to fill in a lot of those gaps. Uh, much like the film fills in a lot of the uh, the gaps. Little tease. Little mm. tease for our thoughts. But Zeke. Yeah. Do you have any trivia on the film of the week, White Noise? Yeah, I've got a couple of little knickknacks. This is actually knick-knacks. Noah Bombox. First time writing and directing a book-to-screen adaptation. That's going to be really important to talk mm. about in the second half of the show. It is. Um, and only the second adaptation after co-writing the screenplay for Fantastic Mr. Fox. So... Yeah. Obviously, you know, we're talking about the Anderson Bombok connection. We've mentioned that before and both films were grocery store scenes. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, we actually did Fantastic Mr. Fox on the show too. We did. Um and I think that'll be a that screen uh book to screen adaptation conversation will be very important in the second half of the show. It indeed will be. Jake, do you have any Fun trivia from the film. I, d- I do, Zeke. Now, admittedly, I didn't have a lot of time between watching the film and, and us starting this mm. podcast. But it's going to be a fresh conversation. Yeah. But th- there seems to be a really deep rabbit hole about the production of this film, mm. which I didn't realize was allegedly nine months long, which That's is insane. an insane amount of time to shoot a film in, in 2022. Or I guess maybe it was 2021 when they shot this. I'm not, not too sure. I'd assume, yeah, 2021. Yeah. Unless you're The Exorcist. And they they took forever to shoot that film. They they were like month thirteen into making that film, and they were just like, "What are we going to do today? Oh, let's shoot this scene." Just the most. There's some crazy sets on that story, but in addition to a crazy nine month shoot, this is actually a film that went through two directors of photography, uh, photographers, I should say, for Michael Saracen, who was actually a, a fired. Apparently, that's the terminology IMDb uses: fired from Noel Bombach and replaced by Lowell Crawley. That's an unfortunate first mm. name. Yes, yes. <laughs> Makes me laugh out loud. And then also had a bunch of deaths on it, allegedly. Yeah, I was, I'm going to keep saying allegedly, because the article I found was very shoddy. Yes. But you're right, apparently there were three deaths of crew members, including heart attacks, suicides. And it's interesting, because, you know, you see the billing, you know, you've got mm. this guy who's writing and directing, his wife is his the star, female yeah. lead. Yep. Um... Your male lead is someone that you have worked with before and mm. you clearly have a very positive relationship with. So to see the 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 crew sort of aspects to it, I mean, we did have a whole... Maybe 2022 was just the uh, the the year of tumultuous sets mm. and gossip, you know. I know, because like, like you said, you think it's a tight-knit family, this crew, yeah. but uh, with all these allegations, maybe, maybe the themes of the movie got to certain people. Yes. Look in the film, you never know. But Zeke... Would you put this film on your 1,100 films you must watch poster? No. Mm. Yeah. Look, I'll say this. There's a lot of interesting themes in this film that I that I love to see explored, that I would love to see explored in other films as well. Um, 
uh, there was another film that came out in the last year that has very similar themes. I still think this film did, did it better than that film. We'll mention it later, but um, no, definitely wouldn't put it on my my poster. I'll put a film like Contagion on there instead. Mm. I think I think that sort of tackles fear, anxiety, death, mayhem in a in a more focused mm. direction. But maybe we're getting a little too sidetracked. Let's get on with the show, Zeke. You've been watching anything in the last week? Not really. To be honest, mm. it's been a very quiet week. Um, it's sort of strange when, you know, obviously in holidays and gearing up for first year teaching. Yep. Um, you know, knew we broke the news about your like your film going ahead. Mm. Um, so, the, yeah, mostly the last week it's just been... I've been burning through this show that only has four seasons, Black Sails. I've burnt through all of season two, almost all of season three. And nice. Yeah, it's a it's a good show. I think it obviously like I was saying prior to the show, I think it really suffered from being surrounded by probably shows of similar ilk. Uh, and I say that in the Game of Thrones right. of the world and the Just say Vikings fits Vikings that term, of yeah. the world, yeah. And I think and I would even say Westworld to an extent too. Sure. Um, at least the earlier seasons. And I when I say it got lost in that shuffle, it was almost like and it, particularly in the first two seasons, I found that, and Game of Thrones, I think, suffered the same hindrance, was the the use of getting an R rating and then just sort of exploiting that R rating for, you know, paraphernalia and, and mm. inappropriate. Well, content that's, to be honest, is ends up detracting. Right. I mean, it's... I, I, there are certain ways to go about doing scenes, and I get it. It was a product of that time, but it's it definitely feels like that shock value. Is shocking, what they're, they're shocking going. to be shocking. Shocking to be shocking. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, cool. Um, when's this, the yeah, plot going to move where's forward? Where's the story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I get that. And I think Vikings did really well with walking that line better than in my opinion, better than any of the other fantasy or medieval mm. Shows, I think it did better than Game of Thrones did in the in, in the long run, especially. Um, and I think um, Black Sails is one of those shows that's a very perfectly pleasant watch in the sense that you still get enjoyment out of it. There still are some good moments, but sometimes they they just fall back on less so in the latter seasons, but definitely mm. in those earlier seasons, the the get you in the door seasons. They right. they rely on that a little bit, and you're like, okay, cool. But when's the plot going to move forward? Sure. Yeah. And some characters really feel like they just don't do that much in the first two seasons, mm-hmm. and and you're it's just interesting when you've only got four seasons. And I don't know if that meant I haven't looked into it whether they got cancelled or they just had it. It was just a shorter run show, right? But it makes me it makes me think. I'd be very interested to see what happens in the next season or so. So there are, there are four total. Four total seasons. Yeah. About 10 episodes in each season. So. Okay. I think because like, you kind of look at shows that you think of that had like a very healthy runtime, and mm. you think like kind of that four to, the, sorry, that five to six season arc. Mm. I think four was like just shy of that. And, and like Westworld is, I think, one that stopped at four. Yeah. Um, but and almost, it, it almost went it. too long for some people. <laughs> I would argue it probably did. Mm. Um. I think I'm glad the fourth season's so definably done. Yeah. Like, it's, there's definitely not going to be a fifth season. And 
Um, yeah, you could you could argue that that show had two really really good seasons, mm-hmm. one pretty good season and then one very okay season. Right. Um, and maybe this is following a very similar trajectory. Um, in the sense that it's had really good moments, and uh, to be honest, it's getting the build in season three is probably the best build of a season. Okay. Um, mainly because the 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 world is starting to come under threat, so we're starting to get to the the big conflict that has yeah. been staged, and really good set pieces, very good compelling performances from a bunch of actors you've probably never really heard of or heard of again. Mm, interesting. Um, I personally couldn't find a single actor in in the cast that i'd seen elsewhere prior to or even after the show finished in 2017 so right. a lot of australian actors oh um, interesting which is always quite quite impressive there's only one character yeah. that i knew beforehand and that was because he was in one of those um seven telly movie series about in excess he played okay. michael hutchinson right so um he's the only character that i was like oh i know who that that actor that's what he was doing um, right <laughs> after that um but yeah that's all i've been uh catching in the last week probably should try and watch more but no no that's fair enough you, you enjoy your holiday as, as well it's much true as you yeah please. obviously coming back from camping on wednesday you know yes was, uh, exactly yeah it goes by quick but what about you jake what have you caught in the last week yeah so i haven't caught a lot either that that's part just because i've been so busy with the film you mentioned which we can get to in a bit I did manage to catch one film outside of the film of the week, and, and man, between these two, I'm going to say, oh man, it is what it is, but <laughs> I, I picked two films, let, let me put it this way, because right now I'm trying to exercise both muscles of like the, okay. the um, sort of the, the producing organizational side of trying to put this whole thing together, and then trying to put that away for two hours to watch a film and like get invested in the world sure. that that film presents. Now, I'm not saying that's an excuse for me not liking this film I'm about okay. to mention, but also, like, oh man, I couldn't have picked a film that was just more boring. I'm just gonna, <laughs> I hate calling films boring, but this one just was. I watched Amsterdam, which is on Disney oh, Plus wow. at the moment. Yeah. Um, the star studded cast through the wazoo. I mean, you've got John David Washington, uh, Christian Bale, Margot Robbie in, in yep. like your lead um, sort of catalogue. But then it's like it's a fully star-studded cast. And you've got random people coming in the frame by themselves, delivering witty monologues to the camera and then almost just leaving the film. Uh, that's kind of the, the the level of cast we're talking about where they're just sort of brought in for a minute and leave. And we're talking like Chris, um, Chris Rock, Taylor Swift, Rami Malek, Michael Myers, Michael Shannon... Robert De Niro's in it for Ed Barkley Jr. makes an appearance. Like, it's just... It's distracting, almost. And, and I don't think it helps, because I think this film is best described as super sporadic. Just, like, the yeah. camera movement, the editing, jumping back and forth in time, even, like, the performances in themselves were all just very sporadic and out there. And, and um, you know, it's all for that effect, I guess. But for those who don't know, Amsterdam, it's about a real-life, I guess, conspiracy that was brought up in the 1930s. A retired uh, general gets murdered, and it's about these two World War One vets and a nurse sort of getting entrenched in that big conspiracy. So it's meant to be this big like romp of like all this craziness happening and them sort of falling upon this big yeah. plot. Um, and I think the film works best when it's that trio just sort of embracing the weirdness that they all belong to, mm. because you've got Christian Bale who um, loses an eye in the war and actually goes on to create a career in the thirties of making prosthetics, uh, inventions for people who've lost limbs and things like that. 
and then you got um, the other vet who goes on to become a lawyer, the nurse. You know, we, when we meet her, Margot Robbie, she's taken out metal shrapnel from people, of course, who've been shot, and is creating like models of like tea sets and all sorts of things out of them. So they're all sort of mm. embracing their weirdness as like this collective trio where there's like a little bit of a love triangle, but not really. There's no kiss until the end of the movie, that kind of very PG love triangle that's going on there. I think the film works best here. Um, even just like the production design is so interesting and fascinating. The film's riddled with it. But then you take all these themes that the film, and again, this is David O. Russell directing. Mm-hmm. I've got a bit of a a wariness towards David O. Russell. I've liked like The Fighter. I really liked Silver Linings Playbook. But he's also made some questionable stuff. And when he was slated to, re- to direct the Uncharted movie many, 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 many years ago, he was making some wild decisions about mm. Robert De Niro playing Sully, who's going to be Nate's dad, and all these wild things that just made me like constantly wary of this director. So I went in not expecting to love the film. It is his first film in nearly a decade. His last film being Joy in 2015. Yeah, well, I'm just looking at it right now. I know. he took. It's, it, this is almost like a mini resurgence of him in some way. And even with Michael Myers and the, the cast, for example, you got a, a little bit of that. But I think... It just felt all like really, really, really flashy and on the nose. And again, there's all these themes of like, you know, disrespect against the vets, and and you know, it takes place in 1930s, so it really is sort of uh, fresh to these characters. And then, um, you know, the disrespect for like different races and people of color. There's a bit of religion v uh, technology in there. You know, the the exploration of the early days of meds and the effect they have on people. There's a lot of themes in there, but they're all buried under again an incredibly deeply boring mystery story mm. and and at two hours 15 it just felt like such a slog so I'm, i really wanted to like this film i love a lot of its cast uh, i forgot to even mention anya taylor joy is in it for quite a bit um yeah i just i struggled again i'm not making that excuse of i have stuff on my mind for saying i found it boring yeah. but well you, it, but your consensus seems to be mm. shared by the community. Yes, so. I did notice. I was like, oh, that's a much lower letterbox score than I thought it was going to be. Yeah. But so. also, I'm not that surprised by it, having seen the film now. <laughs> so yeah, can't say I was a big fan of Amsterdam, which is, uh, that's quite a shame. But it is what it is. Yeah, he's it, also got, um the last couple of films was Joy and Accidental Love, which has got a 1.7. 1.7? Accidental Love. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh, is that the short film? Nah, it's a, that's it's a, a full-length fe- full full length. Length. Okay. film with Jake Gyllenhaal and Jessica Biel. He's the one that did American Hustle, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I yeah, never, so I, I never I, caught I mean, that I'm, one. I'm just looking at his catalogue. I literally only like The Fighter out of all the films from him. Fair enough. I do not like Sylvie Lining's playbook. I do not like I, American Hustle. I yeah. actually don't mind Three Kings, but that's like 20 years ago, okay. David O. Russell. So that's probably not <laughs> fair. <laughs> So it's not quite f- different, yeah, yeah. Not fair. So clearly, um, I don't think I'll enjoy Amsterdam. I'm sure I will get around to it at some point. Yeah, I was I was fairly disappointed by it. Yeah. That's okay. We're, That's fair. We're, we're allowed to Well, be. I guess it's time, Jake. Mm. It's award season time. It is. It's the fourth annual uh, Golden Choc Top Awards or Cinema Sideshow Awards. It's the most important awards of the mm. entire season, Zeke. 
Yes, so I think they're doing the Golden Globes tomorrow, but no one cares about that. I want to hear our <laughs> awards. I want to hear what we think. So for viewers new to this sort of formula, our awards, mm. Jake, would you like to run through the awards we give out on yes. this show? Yes, so uh, since the beginning, we've ran our two main awards, which is the Golden Choc Top Award, where we each give our personal top three uh, films of the 52 we've uh, purposely reviewed and discussed over the last year. Uh, so they have to have been covered in on the show in that capacity for mm. it to count. And then we pick a, a Golden Choc Top Award winner, which we both agree on before the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gives a prestigious award at the end. Now, we also do the same for films we didn't like so much, called the Stale Popcorn Award. So we'll definitely get to that. But since the beginning, we've also introduced a third award, specifically for films that came out in the last year that we may have or may not have covered on the main yeah. part of the show, but still wanted to give a little recognition. Yeah. And, I, and we'll pick about four films, I believe. Yeah, and if I'm, if I'm correct, mm. our order is that we do the, the Year of Award... Then the stale popcorn, and then the yeah. golden chalk top. I feel like we might have mixed it up over the years. We probably have. Not to having. Be not I know that the, I, I would assume the golden chalk top ones always last. That makes sense. Like Less, moving yeah. into the second half of the show, and if that's if I remember the three winners so far. In the first year, it was once. Second yes. year, it was baby teeth. Third year, I'm actually blanking on who won last Ooh. year. Who won last year? It was Florian Zeller's The Father. There you go. One last year. Very, very deserving film we both loved. I've also got the winners of the Stale Popcorn Awards. We had 2019's The Lion King, 2020's The Invisible Man, and 2021's... Uh, this movie might be mentioned later in the show. We have Annette. Yeah, so, wow. <laughs> which, yeah. Adam so Driver. Those films. Uh, two of those three are remakes, interestingly enough. I only just made that connection now. Yeah, beautiful. Um, but, and I'll also mention in last year's personal picks for the, I guess, the 2021 Appreciation Award, I think your personal pick was I'm Thinking of Ending Things, mm-hmm. and mine was The Swallows of Kabul. Both films that uh, we have covered on the podcast. So there you go. Yeah. Excellent. The, now, Zeke. Yes. Let's jump into, I guess, the 2022 Sideshow Appreciation Awards. Yeah. Zeke, what, what's the first film you want to mention from the last yeah, year? Yeah, so... We, if I'm correct, we mm. do essentially we do four, third, second, first. Yeah, we got we got four slots here. Yeah, um, let's embrace it. So I'm gonna start with I'll go with. There's actually a lot of really good ones um, from mm. the last year. Yep. Um, I'm gonna go with one that's a bit uh, left of field to start off with. Ooh, I like that. Um, I'm gonna go with. I'll I'll go with I'll go with the Sea Beast, which is a oh, animated okay. film that came out start of last year. Um, that was sort of in the same vein of um, obviously you know I talked about I think this time last year I was talking up the Mitchells vs the Machines. Yes. So perhaps this is my uh, affiliation and love for animation shining through. Um, was it was this forms. a Sony animation? As I believe well? so. Um, yeah. It's a Netflix original. I'm pretty sure. Okay. So it might be, but it definitely um, was in the same vein as yeah. of that and Spider Verse and all that. Yeah, and obviously director of uh, Chris Williams, who is most well known for Big Hero Six. Um, uh, yep. So clearly coming back, showing off the the same sort of strength and capabilities that he delivered with that film, which mm. is pretty universally loved and. This film's got a really strong, nice 7 out of 10 rating, but for me, I, I did like it a little bit more. Perhaps it's my love for pirates <laughs> and all things to do with that time, but I also thought the, the 
voice acting cast was really good. And, and this was at the height of me watching The Boys and Carl Urban ah, is yes. the lead voice actor in this. So perhaps that also Skewed bolstered your, yeah, yeah. Skewed it. But it's just a really nice... It's one of those films that... They're sort of like these little pleasant gems. They kind of sit in the Atlantists of the world. Like, you know, grow up with those films and everyone's got the ones they like a lot. And yes, then, of course. And then there's the Atlantis sort of Lost Empire animated film that it's like a really good film that doesn't get nearly as much credit as it probably should. I remember the first time I saw it, you forced me to in your yes. room. <laughs> we all great, watched it together. Great movie. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, The Sea Beast. I'm going to go with Chris Williams' The Sea Beast. Excellent. What about you? Well, I'm going to go in a, in a vastly different direction. I'm going to actually mention a film we did cover very recently in my, I guess you're right, number four slot. Yep. Counting down. Uh, I'm going to give it to Glass Onion. Ryan Johnson's Who Done It, and uh, yeah, we only talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Not, not, but I've seen this film several times now because I keep, you know, I like I rewatch it with a friend, or I rewatch it with mum, or I rewatch it with someone, and I just I have a deep appreciation for the film. I don't know if it's quite as rewatchable as the original Knives Out, but I wanted to give him a shout out because I I just thought it was a great film all around. Goes don't to have to talk about it too much though. No, no. check out that episode. Yeah, a couple uh, weeks ago. Yeah, look, I will, for my third place, I will go with The Menu, which hey. I only watched last month with Anna Taylor-Joy. It's just a great film. It's a fun film. Yeah. It's a perfect sort of one room or one location sort mm. of film. Um, probably won't get too much more attention on the show. I doubt we'll ever review it on the show. Um, well, least, yeah, it, 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 it just depends. But I will say, it's coming to Disney Plus this week. There you go. So, finally, I might be like, okay, it's right there in front of me. I might as well just watch it. Very entertaining. Much buzz for it. Um, yeah, so that, that that would be my number three. Excellent, yeah. Well, mine, and I wonder if this sneaks into your list at all at any point, but maybe it will, maybe it won't, but my next slot is for Petite Maman. Now, of course, Portrait of a Lady in Fire, one of my favourite films ever. Mm-hmm. Just an absolute masterpiece of a film. This is Celine Smyers' follow-up. And it is just such a sweet little film. It's like maybe 70 minutes. It's tiny. Mm. Um, so it's cast a two eight-year-olds who were just so good in the film. And and it kind of explores areas and different genres that I was not expecting a film from her to explore. I guess much like Noah Baumbach treads into unique genres for himself <laughs> in the film of the week, um, this kind of does as well in very subtle ways, but just... Just the cinematography and the performances and the overall story. Just all very sweet and pure. It's on stand And now. lovely. Ah, excellent. So I will get to watch it, finally. There you go. Feels like it's been such a tumultuous road to try I and I thought it. you had seen it already. Nope. Oh. I thought it was going to be when we did Swallows of Kabul. That's right. I thought it was going to be on... What was on that? On uh, Moby. Moby. And then it was on it Coming Soon. It was Coming Soon. <laughs> but clearly Stan has bought it out, which is great. Um, I do have access to Stan, so I will be giving it a watch. It's a beautiful little film. I'm going to continue on the Netflix train. Okay. Speaking of streaming platforms, I'll go with Richard Linklater's Apollo 10.5. Ooh, can I give you a spoiler, Zeke? Yes. That is my number one slot of the year. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, unfortunately, Richard didn't take... Real shame it didn't get a title episode. I feel like if it did get a title episode, it'd be very much in the golden... Chalk Top Race. That's um, a good point, yeah. I mean, that film is just... I mean, I think it is my favourite film in the last year, and that's why I put it in that little number one slot for myself. It is... I mean, obviously, it's Richard Linklater, so you kind of have 
um, his directorial style all over it in terms of um, a very deeply focused exploration of a time period, uh, late 60s, space and technologically um, excited yeah. folks. There's no one that does time and place movies better yes. than him. I think, and the essence of time and place with how he captures it is is just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're going to talk about deeply personal like, you know, I, I, I think for him, that was his deeply personal film. And I think yes. you could argue 2022 has quite a few big name directors that have their own personal sort of anecdotal films. And mm. I definitely think Linklater is exploring very similar things to what Spielberg has done with the Fablemans in probably a more subtle way. But mm, okay, I would say it's really quite impressive what he's done with that. And I, uh, the animation, the rotoscope animation is... Oh, just, it's just beautiful awesome like i mean he did it with a scanner darkly and i thought he did it amazing in that film and mm. um i think this film actually goes a step above that film yeah and it, and it's just one of those films where you know every five seconds there's some detail that you know either you you know to a t because you lived through it or you're someone like us who wasn't alive during the time period of this film but but totally is enriched by the world that's being built where we just we understand it because of just all the very specific things that it goes... Because the whole thing is essentially just a big montage. You know, not not to spoil it, but... Um, in terms of the way it's edited, it's really going through... Mm. A lot of the, the small slice-of-life stuff of a larger time period and, and a location as well. And, and before we move on, I just want to talk about how impeccable the editing is in that third act. Um... Not even just like the actual editing, but the the way it tells the story and the emotionality, how different characters have a different emotions and different time periods, but how it connects all that in one big beautiful, mm. um, I guess like thirty minute sequence. Um, I think we really need to do this film at some point, even though, you know, kind of like the menu is like maybe it lost its time, but who who cares? Or let's go. This is our show. Well, Zeke. the beauty of the countdown through a decade's retrospective mm. is it could have the opportunity to be the twenty twenties pick so that is true um um, yeah that i'm more than happy to say it's my favorite film of the last year apollo 10 and a half just just masterful stuff all around so what's your number two so my number two and i doubt i doubt this would make your list actually but we'll see everything everywhere all at once by the dans um which i think i think people might be surprised it took us this long to mention this film in like a year wrap-up it is it is sort of the film that just exploded the world in terms mm. of just something that's so unique and so kinetic and so different from everything else that's out there. And I've only seen it twice, both of which before we did our podcast, so I'd love to watch it again. Um, but it's just one of those films that is... The more you think about how it's made, the more your mind is just kind of like blown by the intricacies of, of all the different universes. Mm. And the way those universes are told in a coherent story. I mean, the film is essentially 50 short films impeccably edited into this one, um, you know, roller coaster, exhausting film. And it is a very exhausting film. And that could be a very bad thing. Like, I know people that are just literally so exhausted by that film that they almost stopped mm. liking it because of it. Um, but with that said, I just, I'm, I'm so glad that the Dans have their voice. Um, even you know, com- even compared to something like Swiss Army Man, where it's just even bigger and better in, in a lot of ways, I think it needs the shout out. I think it's such a a tour de force in terms of just filmmaking. Period. Five visual effects artists in the whole film. 
blows your mind. Insane. I don't even know if we mentioned that in our podcast, but yeah, had to be mentioned. Great, great film. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. I'm going to go with Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans. Wow. Is your number my one? 2022 Appreciation Award. I think it's a film that I think might, you know, it might come back to who those who've watched it. I think it's been universally liked, but mm. I think I loved the film in the yeah. sense that it really feels like it hits your, your understanding how an artist is born, but you're also, you know, you're the ability to, um, him to facilitate human emotions and allow you to join with that story. I think epitomizes why he is arguably the best director of all time. Mm. And I think what he's done with that story and how deeply personal it was to him, but still giving that accessibility to, you know, other creatives, people appreciative of art, um, People who just have a dream, yeah. too, um, as, as universal as that. I think that film goes above and beyond for expressing it. I think it's one of Paul Dano's best performances. Um, I think it's one of Michelle Williams' best performances. I think um, it's a sort of a crown-making for the... Um, not sure, the young man who played... Um, Benny? I want to say his name's Benny. But it is... I'll get a quick double. Have this within my fingertips. Sammy. Sammy. Sammy Fableman. Have this with my fingertips, Zeke. Yes, you were at the Wonders of Technology. Which was very good (laughs) that you were at the ready. Um, Yeah, look, so overall, I think it was the film that just deserved it. And Mm. for me, I think I I sat there, I switched stuff around. It was very, it was probably very close between Apollo 10 and and Fableman's, which sort of kind of bookends what I was saying about these directors that are sort of expressing their childhood. Yeah. And their aspirations and dreams from two completely different lenses and approaches. And I think both are very effective in their results. But for me, I think it just tilts tilts to the traditionalists in me, which Spielberg does touch on that mm. true cinematic art that is slowly, which, you know, is fearful that it gets lost with that generation of sure. directors, I think, because... Are there any like are there any authors that are quite as prolific as that generation? Sure, um, you know, and I think that really resonated with me when I was going through and doing the the Golden Chop Top nominations, and I'm looking at some of the directors we covered. Yeah, and I'm like, I f- feel like the author, maybe the voice still exists, but it's not as boisterous or expressive or easily identifiable. Mm, that or it's buried under. You know, I mean, Spielberg himself has fallen for the trap of just too much tech, too much yep. CGI and films like Ready Player One and things like that. So yeah. there, there's a lot of aspects going into that because you're right. I feel like a lot of these directors we do respect from the 70s, 80s, 90s, they don't hit. And, and I haven't seen The Fablemans yet. I cannot wait to see it. But um, I'm excited to hear that it does invoke sort of classic Spielberg vibes. Yeah, yeah. so day to dream. <laughs> So that was our 2022 Appreciation Award. It is time to move into arguably the, the funniest part of our award ceremony, <laughs> which is the Stale Popcorn Award. Jake, as you brought up our coveted winners of the Stale Popcorn Award, this is the award we give out and unanimously decide its winner. It's the film from the 52 we've done in this season that we liked the least. Mm. Or was the most problematic or the most hilariously bad. <laughs> 
Which this year, do, I think this was the quickest decision and has been sort of <laughs> undisputedly going to win this award. Almost for an entire year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was never, we didn't even have to check earlier today, like, oh, what should we nominate? We've, we've known for a very long time. So yeah. as, as we build to the anticipation of what this film could possibly be, Zeke, I'm going to start with my uh, number three runner-up for my personal stale popcorn film I was either very disappointed with or just thought was a missed opportunity or for whatever reason, I figured yeah. it should end up in here. And there were, there were a few options, a few things that went in and out. Uh, but there's a method to the madness for why this is my number three spot. I'm going to pick Halloween Ends. That's good, because that's, that's mine too. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, it makes life really easy. Which is funny, because this is a film we covered um, with a guest of the show. Zach came on to... He's a big, big, big horror fan. He's made horror feature films and whatnot here locally in Perth. Mm-hmm. So it was great to have that conversation with the three of us together to really dwell into just... No, this is the thing. I don't think this is a bad film in the traditional sense, but it's just a complete wacko film. There are some bizarre choices. For sure. Some big missed opportunities. Yeah. Um, It's what a, just what a bizarre way to end a trilogy. <laughs> yeah. It, it definitely was a very... Um, I think it had a lot of work to do. It had a lot of ground to make up because the second mm. one is laughably bad the sequel it's a it's no truth it's a joke of a film it, it doesn't second, need to exist you can watch halloween 2018 and then jump straight into this one halloween ends and essentially the narrative yeah. still makes sense it makes more sense than if the second one did exist yeah so you know it, it, it was a bit of a head scratcher film and i'm and to be honest when we were sitting in the, the cinema I found myself just enjoying making fun of the film, right. and and but I couldn't help not make fun of the film. I mean, we did, you know, we're talking about like Carpenter. We were talking about the you know the thing mm. oh so many weeks ago, and yeah. and how masterful that that horror can be. Mm. Um, whereas the second and third film of this trilogy was so. Um, head scratching and uh, yeah. like you said th- this third one definitely feels a little bit like a missed opportunity we did talk about it with Zach on the show yeah how there were different ways they could have gone about this characters motivations were very confusing yes climactic the climactic battle was set up so st- staggered and, mm. and strange in its own right and we've even just that that was the entire marketing was this like one-on-one battle between two characters that it, it seems like for two hours of, I don't know how long the film, or maybe say an hour and a half out of an hour, 45 minute film, mm. was like, oh, this film's doing something completely different. And then they just wedge in the battle at the end. just So it's like, oh, we, we did market it. We yeah. need to appeal to those fans. So, real head scratcher, that one. But great choice, Jake, for a stale popcorn. Great, great choice for you as well, Zeke. Yeah. <laughs> well, in that case, I'll jump straight into my number two pick. Another film I think will be mentioned later in the show... Uh, nope. Nope whoa. is my number two. What, why do you say whoa? Stale popcorn. That's wild. Yeah, well... That's wild to me. And the more I think about it, I'm like, I wonder if this should have been in that second spot. But I think, I mean, look, I think Halloween Ends is, is definitely a worse film, if I were to compare the two. They're both horror films, but they do horror in very different ways. One's more of a slasher. This one has more of that sort of Spielbergian... Spielbergian, Spiel, 
Yeah, Spielberg. I would agree. Yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. Sort sense. of that build up to the the tension and the and the the grandiose mystery of what's in the sky and yeah, I, I would argue this film's not even a horror though. Nope, I would say it's more a thriller. Like it has horror elements. Yeah. Well, that last act is absolutely just like an action thriller. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the reason it ended up in this part of my list and and further down than Halloween ends is is again you know you have the, the prestige of Jordan Peele who you know we really love you know, Get Out and Us, and we, we've done them both on the show uh, leading up to Nope. But I think the biggest problem for me, and I'm glad to have seen this reiterated, a lot of people have said the same thing, is that it just film just felt like a cluster of ideas that did not gel in any natural, organic way. And walking out of the film, I've just had no inclination to either rewatch the film or to dissect the film further than we did on the podcast. And again, I, I don't think this is a worse film than the one I've put in the earlier slot, Halloween Ends, but in terms of a missed opportunity, in terms of a film I expected more out of, um, I think this did disappoint me from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, that Nope is my number two slot. I'm going to go with Don't Worry, Darling. Oh, that is my number one slot. There we go. That's beautiful. It's <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, so clearly we're on the relative same page yes. here. I've got one difference to you. So far, um, but yeah, you that. probably won't disagree with my rationale for who my number one pick was. But we'll start oh. with "Don't Worry, Darling." Yeah. Um, obviously, from Olivia Wilde. I think this film is, a, you know, we're talking about the uh, the the woes and trepidation that has come with sets in twenty one twenty one <laughs> slash twenty twenty two. This film was ripe with it, but yes. ends up being a very confusing. Um, Maybe more accurately, yeah, I feel like Miss Potential and ends up yes. being a, a weirdly uh, one-note um, film that was heavily hindered by the politics and production context in its conception and even its distribution, mm. which, I, you know, as we talked about on that episode, as much as you try and remove all of that noise, that white noise... <laughs> If you want to call it that, um, you can't because of positions that certain actors and or directors took while marketing the film, mm. and then contradicting those very notions within the same production distribution cycle. Yeah, and I think that that heavily affected um, the the set and even the final product. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting because, like you said, we did this on the podcast and we, we talked about all the drama leading into the film before talking about the film itself. And for me, even even regardless of all that, which was all very messy and, and very sort of distracting, but the film itself, again, it just kind of felt like a big missed opportunity. There's some great production design in there. There's some great ideas in there. And, you know, and since we talked about it, I've heard of, you know, film X, Y, and Z uh, did this idea, but even better already many, many years mm-hmm. ago. Um, but just the fact that when we sat down to talk about this film, we almost rewrote the film in a sense in that we changed a lot of uh, the structure of how we thought it might have been better to go about in terms of, without spoiling the film, I, don't, I mean, mm. I don't really mind, to be honest, whether we spoil it or not, but yeah, basically... Play, play Fallout 3. <laughs> <laughs> play Fallout 3 and you know exactly what you're getting into. But, but even just the fact that the entire film is reliant on this singular driving question and... The opportunity for you know a really cool midpoint twist where we get we get a bunch of answers to questions we have and that that changed the driving question of the story where instead of having 
everything just sort of lumped at you. You literally have the director playing a character giving you the answers just, like, line by line, as if, like, the film ran out of time to give you those answers. Mm. And it's, like, things like that really hindered the experience for me because, again, there's so much good stuff in there just wrapped around a really poorly thought-out script. Mm. And, and again, you know, we, I talked about Jordan Peele's, like, prestige and the fact that I kind of expected more going into it. We both thought Booksmart was absolutely great. Yeah. We covered that really early in the show's lifespan and thought that was a great film and I was really excited about seeing her do a horror film and Florence Pugh's uh, in it. Yeah, and and it was a very enticing trailer. The trailer. Oh, the trailer's fantastic. Yeah, it definitely sells it. And it's it's a big cast, you know. Not even just excluding Wild, you know, you've got Chris Pine in there. Mm. You know, we always... People, you know, really gravitate towards his performance, Florence Pugh, you know. There there were a lot of... styles. (laughs) He gets bums on seats, though. So... However, you will with his accent and acting ability. Um, There's some great stuff in there. It's like the you hear the not to be too tangential, but mm. you know you did bring up Glass Onion um, with Dave Bautista being like he wants to be like the most serious recognized. Oh, the the, be- the best actor. wrestling actor. Yeah. yeah, it's like well, to be honest, it's not well, hard. Look, I've made fun. <laughs> of, I've made fun of him many times now on the show about his inflated ego. Is that like, any film I'm in is better because I'm in it? Like. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, well, when he says that quote and then you compare it to other wrestling wrestlers turned actors, it's like, well, fair enough. I mean, I, I want to be like, it's not a huge well, dude, competition. You're, com- you're competing with The Rock, who does the, the same. The Rock and John Cena. Yeah. <laughs> kind of do. I mean, John Cena has fun in the, in the DC land, but you're right. Like, the competition's not overly stiff. Yeah. Actually, everyone else is in the DC, but The Rock's in the DC land as yeah. well now. Oh, he got fired, I think. I don't know what... I don't know what's everyone, going on yeah, there. I, everyone's left but him, right? That's the whole thing. No, I think he... Well, I think he got fired as well. Oh, there you go. Because um, James Gunn's firing everyone now. Okay. There you go. And he's good mate Dave Batista. Then again, now he's talking about how like he's outgrowing Marvel and things. And maybe they're not friends. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I don't care. Zeke, what's your number one for the Go- Stale Popcorn Award? Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Oh. Yeah. Fair Surprise enough. didn't make your list. But... No. Th- I was going back and forth. But I, I think... It goes back to uh, Jordan Peele, Olivia Wilde. Mm. These are people I expected more out of, and I think the I never was I was never excited about the Elvis film. I don't really care for Baz Luhrmann's director. I've seen barely anything he's made. Um, not not for any particular reason. I just haven't seen yeah. a lot of his films. And I'm, yeah, I went into Elvis and was fairly disappointed by it. I didn't think it was very great, but I also yeah. I wasn't yeah. offended by it. <laughs> you know, and I, I think retrospectively hearing about sort of the way Austin Butler was treated on that set and he wasn't very happy with that, quite disgruntled. Oh, that. I didn't even know that. Yeah, apparently he got like major, didn't consent to sort of method acting and then Baz Luhrmann got oh. through to like sh- shout abuse at him. And he, obviously it was shot That's here bizarre. in Australia. Yes. And he's American and they were here, the, the shoot, Apparently the shoot was over two years, so he had Austin Jesus. Butler hadn't left Australia for like nearly two years, and then big part was, of that was COVID, I imagine. Yeah, as big part was COVID and and all that, and I think to be honest, it sounds like it was a once again uh, seemed to be a, a less than satisfactory set. Now, is this the world we live in that now because everything's broadcast, um, all sets are now going to be bad sets or good sets, or where does the everyone speaking out about set etiquette 
maybe that's a new the new thing. I think I mean like the knowledge has always been around. You know, there's a good set versus a bad set. I mean, we even get that here in you know our small little village mm. of Perth. But I think maybe what we're seeing is you know a post Me Too movement mm. where there's just there's less of a passive um, uh, response yeah, to less a of bad a set bystander sort of effect. Yeah, yeah I oh Kevin Spacey, he's just doing what he does. You know, that's normal. Yeah. Versus now, where it's like, no, we we should be speaking up about inappropriate behavior and things like that. So yeah, I mean that's probably what. We're to seeing. be honest, it's a it's a bloated film that often I think has, you know, has a very very commendable, very respectable, very impressive performance from Austin Butler. But that's yeah. about where the compliments for me um, stop. Mm. I don't like the stylism of Lerman films. I. I think Tom Hanks's performance is questionable to poor in that film. <laughs> um, so I, I, you know, we're criticising Harry Styles for his accent changing, but sure. Tom Hanks is allowed to get away with it because he's made good films before. And I think you've obviously got to judge each. Beg my pardon, judge each. Beat uh, up the mic. I know you're upset film, about yeah. Elvis Zeke, but but oh that's Lord. about it. The finale's <laughs> the finale's good, I guess. Um, when the final song. Um, there's some good songs I in there. I barely remember it. Yeah. This, it. This, this is a film that is simultaneously too fast and also do, doesn't... is like What's the word I'm looking for? It's too bloated and yet too fast-paced. Yeah. It's somehow that. Yeah. And I think, to be honest, you know, and Elvis films now have been done to death, I think, Elvis biographical or fictional depictions or mm. fictional retellings of Elvis's story there there's there's a plethora of those films now and sure. I just think he's too either to be honest I think he might just be too big an artist to ever tackle a cohesive narrative um I think it's very interesting musician biopics because they can be done, but they have the challenges of being set over many years, normally. The and thing, that's just like a trope everyone has fallen into. They don't have to be that, though. Yeah. Just look at, this, look at the two different Steve Jobs biopics that came out, like, two years apart. And, and how much more successful the one that decided to just hone in on specific events instead of just, we just got to cover everything. We're going to cover his entire life. This is how he was born. This is how yeah. he learned his first word. This is how he stole this bloody, you know... Stop trying to cover everything. Yeah, when it, and and I think Lerman came in with at least a, a, a clear idea. I want to analyze the relationship between his manager and Elvis because yes. the belief is that I'm taking to them this film is the manager is the main causation of this artist's death. So okay, that that's yes. fair enough. But On paper, then, that's great. Yeah, that is, but that's not the final product we really got to see. It got bloated yep. within basically documenting how Elvis rose to fame, and we don't really need to focus on that i think there's too many characters there these weird moments they're trying to shoehorn iconic moments from elvis's music career in there so ends up being quite um difficult to follow sometimes or just very slow in some parts and then sprints through other parts and and by the time you get to the the vegas stuff you're a little you're just disorientated Mm because you don't know where everything's going and you know it's you know we can actually talk a little bit about Elvis's relationship with family members with the film of the week. Um, <laughs> there's a lot There's a lot going on here, Zeke. A lot yeah. of connections and all backs. I like it. it doesn't take out the stale popcorn award. No. No, it certainly doesn't. But I mean, like, like I said, it didn't even enter my, my list because 
Like, I sort of wanted to gear towards those that were more disappointing than just straight up bad. Or laughable. But this award, this stale popcorn award winner does sort of tick all those boxes. <sighs> Jake, would you like me to announce the winner of the stale popcorn award? You should. I, okay. I shouldn't. You should. I feel like you'll lose life over it. I'll give you the, the, the happy <laughs> moment of the show. The winner Thank of you. the of season four or the 2022 stale popcorn award by the Cinema Sideshow podcast is indeed Uncharted. 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 Imagine we, we even got an episode out of that movie. <laughs> I me- I mentioned it. I, I literally just mentioned how long ago. There was a point where David O. Russell was making an Uncharted movie. It's how long this goes back. This is how long I've been waiting, Zeke. Yeah. For an Uncharted movie. And it and ironically, a week from now I'm gonna be talking about The Last of Us HBO show. That's that that's how soon that's about to drop. And like compared to How are you gonna watch it? It's coming to binge. What? Yeah. Next Monday. You gotta get binge back then. Oh, there you go. Which you know, comparatively not even comparatively, just in general, I think The Last of Us HBO show looks fantastic. But from the first screen grab, from the moment they announced the cast for this Uncharted movie, I was like, oh dear. As as a long, long, long time fan of this series, it's still like my favorite video game franchise ever. I adore the Uncharted games so much. Um, this was this was just tough. This was so tough. It is not true to any of the characters. The adventure, we talked about this on the podcast, the adventure, even just as a standalone, you know, Indiana Jones ripoff, is also very bad. There's no logic. There's no sense. There's no excitement. The soundtrack yeah. is incorrect. It sounds like a Mission Impossible soundtrack when it should be, you know, there should be horns coming in and getting you excited. We're going on an adventure. Yeah. It just gets, like, everything wrong. Everything. Yeah, and it, it really goes to show, and, you know, the the cautionary tale of the video game movie adaptation mm. has, has continued its downward spiraling, tunneled um, descent. <laughs> um <laughs> There aren't many video game properties. Even it even claimed Spielberg with Ready Player One. Yes. So, um, look, Uncharted's just funny to me. It's like one of those films that I probably will rewatch because it's so bad. Right. But the fact that I watched that and then The Lost City with Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum mm. and Daniel Radcliffe, yeah, and was like that was ten times the adventure film <laughs> <laughs> than this open like. It's marketing is it's an adventure film. Yeah. And I think, you know, the op- the conversation and you brought up the last of a show starting next week, which is great. I think maybe video game properties would benefit more from the serialized format. Sure. Um I think I think they're doing nine episodes, nine hour long episodes. They're gonna just cover straight up the last of us story, the whole the story of the original game, plus like the two hour DLC pack. I think that's a perfect amount of length. Yeah. To let that story breathe and take... Because that is meant to be like a, a, a cross-country journey between two characters. And I don't think there's anything wrong with Uncharted being a two-hour movie. Because, frankly, that's what the games... I mean, if you take out all the... Gameplay. Yeah, if you take out all the climbing and, and the general shooting, and even if you leave the set pieces in, you still got a two-hour story there. Yeah. So it, it should translate... I can't remember which review I was reading. I was reading someone's review that said, like, this was... This is the easiest thing to adapt into a movie. Yeah, it the is. The easiest one, and they completely screwed it up. Because the thing is with Uncharted is you can call it an Indiana Jones ripoff. That's mm. fine. It, you know, it's just a, a globe-trotting adventure, swashbuckling, all that. 
But the, f- the reason the games are so successful is because they very carefully orchestrated not necessarily a plot. Most of the plots are just like, we've got to get this thing. Oh, but this thing's in the way. Now, now the enemy... They're all very simple, mm. repetitive plots. But it's the characters and the dynamics between those characters that were just so special. And especially in gaming, where you just didn't have that level of dialogue delivery. There's still games coming out this year yeah. that just like... Like, really? Like, we but still it, haven't evolved in voice acting? And inherently, it's really interesting because I don't care if it's an Indiana Jones rip-off because I'm sure there's a, a film that came before Indiana Jones that Indiana Jones is, is derivative of. But sure. the reality is, it's like that was the big selling point of the Indiana Jones films. The original three films, why everyone liked them is because it wasn't just Indiana Jones. It was Indiana Jones with, with like, the female choice of the paramour of the movie... Mm. And then his collection of little ensembles to the point where the third film is almost an ensemble film by its conclusion sure. with Last Crusade. The, the other two films maybe a little bit have a smaller cast, but the second film has Short Round in it, which is an intro- another introduction. Yeah. So there are supporting characters there. And like you said, the dynamics what makes you come back for more because you exactly. like these characters. Exactly. They've got a compelling rift. And I couldn't think of someone who feels like they've got more forced chemistry with anyone than mark Wahlberg. <laughs> like seriously in all seriousness yes. it's like your biggest red flag isn't um tom holland it's not it's 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 bloody mark Wahlberg. well it's just and this is why i won't stop i know i shouldn't be talking about adaptations as if they should be one-to-one exact but for for uncharted i feel like you really needed more of that because that's what made the game so special is the characters and their dynamics together and the set pieces are great, but, you know, you, you play the set pieces in the game because, wow, I'm playing this whole thing, I'm falling off a building, and it's all on the stick, it's all, like, gameplay. And it's like, that you can't really translate to a movie, you just have a traditional set piece, you know, mm. you get your big green screen effect, it's like, whatever, but you need to retain the characters. And this film spits on the characters. Yeah, and it's ironic because, you know, you brought up the, the, the soundtrack sounds Mission Impossible, but they've even missed the point of Mission... This film took more of a Mission Impossible route the the more successful more recent ones have actually relied on an ensemble cast not just tom cruise yeah. and and impressive a, set pieces yeah it's a team <laughs> you know and it's like cuz the best part is you know you got tom cruise in there you got simon pegg in there yeah. i think jeremy renner's in there a little bit alec baldwin's okay. in there in those in the latter films and henry cavill's like a really good villain in mm. fallout so it's like you're like oh okay well this is really cool but it's like i can't even remember who was who's the villain oh, i was antonio banderas and then he gets killed <laughs> <laughs> what a waste of Antonio Banderas. Uh, in the in the dumbest way possible, just... For some reason. Yeah, look. Because. That, that, uh, that Uncharted film was very... I mean, we knew it. We knew it going in, and it was even more, like, just, like, I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking with that. And the thing is, it was very successful. They're definitely going to make another one. It made a shitload of money. Mm, yeah. Anyway. Mm. It, it is what it is. So that Uncharted... The clear state, state, stale popcorn award for 2022. Like I said, Zeke, we've known this for a long time. Yeah. I think it was last February we watched that film. So and I think you turned to me when the credits roll and you're like, well, we've got a new front runner. <laughs> and it wasn't and it, it wasn't taken off. It was not taken off, no matter how bad some of these other films that released in the last year. I mean, I saw Morbius. I saw Morbius in the last year. I still enjoyed it more than I enjoyed the Uncharted movie. But anyway. It is what it is. Zeke, Zeke, let's get let's get more positive. Yeah. Let's get a bit more positive in the in this game. We're gonna talk about our golden chalk top runners ups. Um 
Zinc, what, what hits your third slot? For, for the more positive films we've covered in the last year. I'm going to go with Swallows of Kabul. Ooh, very nice. Um, Beautiful. No real surprise. You're obviously going into that episode. You were very much saying I was it was your favourite favorite film of 2021. Mm. Um, and it lived up to it. It's an incredible watercolour animation. It's a very compelling, very disturbingly real story. Mm. Um, and I think I was really torn between... I only picked one, and it was Wolfwalkers or Swallows. Yeah, I was going to take that slot. And, Both of them easily could have made my list. And I opted for Swallows because I just think the story is a little bit more important and mm. to discuss and it's more a little bit more of a uh, culturally relevant story to be told sure. in the in the modern day. Um, whereas Wolfwalkers is just a universally more accepted, like more um, mm. consumable film. Sure. Give me Wolfwalkers over Avatar any day of the week, I reckon. <laughs> um, I don't know how Avatar Way of Water made $1.7 billion. I don't know anyone who saw it. I can count the number of people I know who saw it on one hand. Wild. And apparently um, it's on its way to $2 billion. I don't understand that, but the film's fine. It's totally fine. We talked about it a few yeah. weeks I talked about it a few weeks ago. What about you? Um, yeah, no, I honestly, either of those films could have made my list. They're both beautiful animated films. Um, I'm going to make my third pick's going to actually sort of mirror my third pick for the stale popcorn because it's also a film where we had a guest on. We had oh. Harrison come on to talk about School of Rock, it's which is choice. my third choice. Now, I'm a little worried about picking films that, that I've seen many, many, many times that I've, I saw. I mean, God, it's it would have been nearly 10 years ago when that film came out now, so... I've seen it many times, and I'm a huge fan of it, but I'm so glad we got to do it on the podcast, to have Harrison on, and to just really eat it up, especially with you know how much you love Linklater, to finally watch this film mm. and get in on the discussion. So I just wanted to give a shout-out to School of Rock there, because it's about time we covered a film like that. This is so great, and still holds up really well. Not just the comedy, but just like the music, the ensemble. We just talked mm. about ensembles. Um, just a fun film all around. Super rewatchable enjoyable, all of that. Yeah. Gotta love School of Rock. I'm gonna go with Come On, Come On. Oh, Razzie number two? Yeah. Fascinating, okay. So I, didn't... I thought this would have been your number one. It was close. Yeah, okay. But another film I think that's more important and, oh, it's just an awesome film. It Ooh. comes ahead, just bips it out. But yeah, th- this film... Could have easily you could easily have slotted it into the appreciate. It would have won the appreciation award. Sure. Um, it's a great film. It's a soft film. It's really nice to see Joaquin in a film kind of like this. And it's mm. funny that you know he was like EP on on Stutz, which we covered a few weeks ago. That's right. Yeah. Um, which I think maybe sort of we start to see a more authentic Joaquin Phoenix. You know, mm. we've, I think the last couple of years we've been caught, sort of caught in his more. Uh, maddening crazy performances like joker <laughs> or even in the master with with paul thomas anderson well they're, they're and, coming and, back with um buell is afraid which used to be disappointment boulevard so ariasta he's gonna, he's gonna drive him insane later this year <laughs> yeah and i i think there's something about come on come on that's it's such a quiet film and mm. you you walk away feeling really nurtured by it um and i think it's a film that has a lot of commentary in it and a lot of subtext and a lot to digest. It's it's one of those movies that you authentically watch and you walk out and go, "Why couldn't I have made that film?" Because uh, mm. like, um, that feels like a really attainable, really smart film. Yeah. Um, so full credit to Come On, Come On. 
Yeah, no, it's a great film, and I was lucky enough to watch it in an empty cinema, so I was able to just really ponder and appreciate it. And I especially love, you know, the fact that he's going around interviewing these children, but then sort of letting the children ramble. And I don't know if they're on a script or not with that, but it is just, it's just one of those films where you get, you know, several minutes to digest, sit back, and listen to, you know, five, six, seven year olds just talk about their view of the world and how innocent and pure a lot of it is. Mm. And the film is just constantly. Um, letting you live in that environment and just the the gorgeous black and white cinematography and everything. it's a great film so I'm, yeah. I'm very happy to see it in your list yeah what about you uh, my number two slot wonder if this is your next film Zeke almost famous it's not oh no. I tried to it sort of had the same almost famous had that mantra of um School of Rock yes I just was like ah oh. you're so familiar with it already it's such an easy film for me to be like yeah this is my number one so I always try to avoid it's I mean it's a great choice I'm really glad mm. it makes your list because I think yes. it's more important it makes your list than my list of course well I mean in the simple fact this is the first time I watched it yes and we did in the podcast I believe it was our countdown for the decades challenge that yeah. invoked us to watch it I'm guessing that was your pick yes would have won um I don't know what I would have put in that same category. Oh, probably Little Miss Sunshine. I think so, yes. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, I'm kind of glad it lost because I had already seen that film. I love that film. We we should still do it on the podcast at some point. But I'm glad it gave me an opportunity to watch Almost Famous because it really is just like a fantastic coming-of-age story, the surrounding um, sort of rock aesthetic, but just the things that, you know, this young... You know, naive journalists can teach these the the rock band, and then what mm. they can teach him back on this on this uh, journey. Kate Hudson, just phenomenal performance. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, just a fantastic film that I'm I'm finally glad I got to watch. Yeah, thanks to this podcast. It's a and it's a fantastic film. You know, we're talking about childhood films, and that was Cameron Crowe's story. Yes. So, um, it ends up being a really sort of personal film in that in that way and I think that's the sort of the, those films fall along the lines of why you want to be a filmmaker mm. or why you want to tell stories or why you love talking about movies because you watch something like Almost Famous a road trip film essentially yes. and and something as traditionalist as a road trip film you know where you can charter a hero's journey based off a, a journey around a certain location it, it's it's just simple storytelling but it's compelling and effective mm. and it's I think it's a testament to how strong that ensemble cast is, despite the fact a lot of them were no names sure. um, yeah. at the time. In fact, all of them, bar Francis McDormand, who mm. s- serves as this amazing remote sort of role away from the rest of the cast. There's Dutch in it as well, isn't she? Yeah, it's a very early. Yeah, so very early yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Now. But it's like, yeah, even she's great in it in yeah. a very early performance way. Um, so yeah, it ends up being a really compelling cast and an amazing film yeah yeah fantastic zeke yes what's your number one golden with... chock top runner-up my runner-up for this year is jane campion's the piano wow okay and i think it's because oh wow i know i know it's a real and you could have easily sat between um that or or even the power of the dog but i'm gonna go with piano because i do think the piano is a better film sure i think palm your winner yeah, and mm. to be honest, you know, if you can make one film even remotely on the same level as something like The Piano, you've yeah. pretty much done it as a filmmaker, you know. Mm. You know, we talked about Peter Weir in, in previous years and how we could argue he's probably the best Australian director. Sure. But Campion would be a pretty close second for a Kiwi director, mm. right? So, 
Um, I think uh, she's amazing with what she tells in that story. I think it's one of. I mean, I think, I think it's Cartel's best performance. Harvey Cartel's best yeah. performance. Uh, very arguably, Sam Neill's best performance too. And I think collectively, the narrative's amazing. The soundtrack's moving. You know, we talked about things like with. I think Portrait does really well with sort of the seduction of mm. two characters subtly, and I do yeah. actually think the piano does it just as well. Yeah, um, sure. I mean, I mean that those are both great examples of feminist filmmaking, but like um, story, subtle visual storytelling that's not beating you over the head with the idea of like a woman's place in society in the respective timelines and the fact that she's mute, for example, and uses the piano as a communication tool. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's kind of and it's interesting because it's like you look at the piano and then you look at something like Coda. Now, mm. Coda's, and they're both films from the last year that yes. sort of don't tackle similar themes but obviously have characters with disabilities in them. Yep. And voice and speech is highly dependable in both. Mm. And the, or the lack thereof of it, the ability to communicate effectively. And, you know, Coda doesn't do anything wrong, but Coda definitely goes the more traditionalist route. You know, we walked away from Coda both like being Disney like... Film, yeah. yeah, we both felt like, oh, okay, we consumed a very consumable film, a good mm. film, a film that was fine. But <laughs> do I... I don't have any compelling reason to watch Coda again. Sure. Whereas I could absolutely watch The Piano again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, so I'm going to go with that That's one. a fantastic choice, Zeke. Especially because my boss worked on that film. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad it's in one of our lists. Oh, goodness. My number one pick, and you actually mentioned this film a little earlier, Zeke. The Thing. Yeah. 1982. Another film I am so grateful that because of this podcast, I got to watch it for the first time. Uh, I think it was our director's corner. Yep, for Carpenter. Yeah, and wow, just like... I think next to The Exorcist, one of my easily top three favorite horror films of all time. Just like the use of horror, but then also the lack of traditional horror genre elements, and the fact that so much of the film is just about these guys and their distrust for each other, yeah. and that the horror almost relies on just that for a good period of the film. But just like the the cold visuals, the performances, the body horror, and the gore, and how everything comes mm. out, and it's just like it all just works. And I, I'm pretty like iffy on on hot where like the horror is just like this thing that can shape shift into you know i'm always kind of like wary of that where i'm like oh the the threat is just it can be whatever it wants but i think for some reason the in the thing it just it works so perfectly and i think again because it relies on fear and deception mm. and anxiety as a lot of its motivators for the and characters. And it's such a remarkable film because it's a film that was met with a lot of animosity and criticism at its sure. time of release and, and has required years to sort of ferment into what uh, people really appreciate and can look mm. back on and go, that was a pinnacle of, of of gore and horror used contextually appropriately to drive a narrative forward. Mm. And a brilliant ending as well. Great ending. Which a lot of horror films could take note on. Yeah. Absolute brilliant ending. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Zeke, there can only be one. There can. That is our main I'm very happy top. with that choice. Me too. I'm I'm glad. We only really came up with it today, I think. Yeah. And it's a film that well, we we don't have to tease it too much, but No. I mean it, it I think this film actually really invokes a lot of what the very first Golden Choc Top winner does as well in terms of its relation to music 
but also in regards to the way it tells a story through um, you got fiction and then not fiction, documentary and then performant, performative mm. and sort of melding all those together. Something that like even something like American Animals, our third ever episode, does to an extent, but I, I can stop teasing it now. Zeke, I'll, I'll let you announce. I'll let, what, what is the golden Choc Top Award winner for 2022? Yeah, no worries. Well, the 2022 golden Choc Top winner by the Cinema Side Show podcast goes to Martin Scorsese's The Last Waltz. The It's a great film. It's it's yes. it's one of those films. We're talking about time and place moments. I think what Scorsese's done with that, and you know, you think at the time in which it was recorded, released, all that. You know, you, it's a film that I think gets has gotten once again more appreciation as the years have gone by mm-hmm. because people really realise the significance of that night in terms of. Uh, 20th century music, um, the convert, uh, the legacy of, of one band to have on such a, a, a seminal time in music, storytelling, conversations, change, growth. Um, and I don't think any, and I also think it's, it became a, a landmark, uh, a pinnacle to how a music documentary can be effectively structured mm. to have a perfect balance of biographical and, um, biographical and then expressionist art, which um, not many not many music documentaries have nearly done as effectively as what Scorsese did with no, that well, one the, concert. I mean, that's the thing, like you said, it's an amalgamation thing because you got you got interviews with members of the band sort of peppered throughout, but they're all very carefully laced and they are telling their own narrative in addition to the order that Scorsese decides to to play the songs that are played on that night. Um, and it, you're right. It's just it's it's so timeless, and in terms of you know, like we said with Richard Linklater, it it really truly is documenting a time and place and cementing it. So we you, when you watch it back again, we haven't lived in this time period, but 
we can we can feel it and we can breathe its air and mm. I'm gonna use all of these n- nonsense comparisons to explain why this film is so great but I think I think it's almost like a really important preservation of like you said an important era in music mm. and in culture in general because music is so important to our culture um, in a lot of ways you could argue it's more important than than film in culture yeah but yeah, I think I just the amalgamation of all those things and the way Scorsese tells that story through through you know just a one night where it's oh let's place a bunch of cameras here and record these you know uh, these artists playing instruments yeah and, but it's so much more than that because of the again the importance of where the camera is and and you know who we on during each set and the way he tells the story through the frame as well like who's framed in at what point during the songs. It's a lot yeah, of editing. Thought. Editing's exceptional. Yeah. It's it's peak Scorsese. Um his interviewing style being casual but still sort of provocative, very yes. interesting. Um Well like, it's almost the, showing not the answers, but what what are the things they say in between the question and the answer. Mm. You know, when they decide, Oh, can we roll that again? Can we do that a second time? It's like that's almost more telling about the band and their personality yeah. than what a traditionalist documentary would do. Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's raw and it's it's just awesome, really. Um, and I think what he's done there is he's you know he's been that opportunist. He's seen he's seen. We're talking about uh, missed potential or or um, missing the mark with with films in our stale popcorn category. The ones that had potential but didn't quite capitalize on it. Whereas this is the complete opposite. This is a filmmaker that saw an opportunity, saw a moment in history. Yes. And almost saw the service to record it for that reason. You know, it's not just watching a concert back and being like, wow, that was a really good concert. No, it's mm-hmm. interwoven with with these um, interviews, uh, following the recording process, uh, studio-based recordings after the fact in an mm-hmm. empty theatre with these more ethereal settings and, yes. and, and dressing, you know, when, with like Evangeline. It's true, like Evangeline's a whole different version of it. Yeah. In a different location, yeah. And the same with the weight. And it's... Uh, really interesting because those are like in isolation because what they're trying to almost show, um, you know, particularly with like the weight when they're doing the weight is it's about the band in that moment. It's not mm-hmm. about the concert. Yeah. It's no, let's watch this collection of five musicians who are all exceptionally talented. You've got three singers in that group and then you've got one of the best guitarists in the world with Robbie Robertson playing and you're watching it all go together in this melody and you're just blown away because, you know, they're supported by the Staples and, <laughs> and you know, then you've got an Evangeline where it's with Emmy Lou Harris and it's like you really sit back and you register and that build, that real slow build to introducing Bob Dylan in the last 20 minutes <laughs> is so good because yeah. it's like, you know, as someone who then goes and watches like Once We Were Brothers or even has any idea of the history of the time, the band and, and Bob Dylan are interwoven. Yeah. The Bob Dylan doesn't get nearly as successful if it wasn't for the band. And that's what we're talking about. And as for a lot of the other artists there that were supported by members of the complete band because yeah. they were the, the backing band. And, what, um, and what's so cool about that is like there's stories about how they almost didn't even have him or there was some contractual yeah. thing that went wrong or they ate, there wasn't a communication between agents. There was something like that. I'm forgetting the story. But what's even cool about those kinds of stories, which are not unsimilar to the production woes of something like Don't Worry Darling and White Noise and those other films, but this is real. Yeah. Like, if if 
you know, he wasn't in this film or we weren't they weren't allowed to record his performance. Yeah. That almost changes like that could change everything. Yeah, well, it would change the dynamic the of the did. film. Yeah. And it and it comes back to if we really think about this this is the testament to the true filmmaker that that Scorsese is and and you know this is very early this is first decade of him being around he's only been like a, a thing for four or five years at this point but mm. it's interesting because it's like that night is like you get one shot at that night yes exactly and to have There's a pressure for the whole film a collection and to avoid like going and looking at doing crowd reaction shots it's about the music yeah. it's not about the crowd of that day because it's almost like he knew the film was going to be more like you said like an archival piece it's yes. a piece of history it's not about the people in the crowd because the people in the no. crowd know that they're there. You don't they need there. their reactions. Yeah. It's so unnecessary. Um, yeah. It's beautiful. And it just allows these musicians to just do their best. And like I said, it's that generational thing, you know, having the Ronnie Hawkins of the world who, who passed away in the last year and um, or like Muddy Waters and stuff. You know, you've got generations of performers mm-hmm. throughout that concert. Um and their in their ability to just move between genres of music from like hard country to yeah. rock to you know with Eric Clapton to like the blues and they've moved seamlessly mm. and then yeah it's like all those little stories like the 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 Dylans not like saying they don't want to be recorded or yeah. or Eric Clapton losing his strap halfway through playing his song <laughs> and Robbie Robertson just saving him casually yeah like, yeah seamlessly and it's those little imperfections, and I think Scorsese has talked about it. That's what makes it so good. Or it's mm. Neil Young going out with illicit drugs on his under his nose, and he had to <laughs> pencil it out. So, but like, like you said, because it is an archival piece, like him having the strap broken and things like that. that, that you're right; it, they're crystallizing a moment in time. It's not some, you know squeaky clean behind the scenes featurette that's like, oh, look how happy everyone was, look how pristine. It's like, no, this is. This is authentic. Yeah, especially when you compare it to the the contemporary music documentaries of today, the Taylor Swift Miss Americanas that yep. are like, or the the Billie Eilish one, or even the Beyonce one, where they're talking about like, look at how squeaky clean this mm. person is, and it, it doesn't feel authentic or real. It feels contrived. It, it feels like a Barbie and Ken world, you know. <laughs> ironically, um, so. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic piece of cinema, mm. and one so, such a, I would love to go watch it in a cinema. And I missed, yeah, I know missed we out. missed an opportunity. It was only a few weeks ago. Scorsese, yeah. I believe his 80th birthday, but I'm sure there'll be other opportunities sure will. in the future. But yeah, the last waltz is just phenomenal, yeah. and I'm really glad it's our golden chalk top award winner for this year, season four. Well, Jake, we can slightly bridge into career updates if you have anything sure. to pencil us in and then move into the film of the week. Yeah, no, well, um, Skin and Blister, we, I talked a lot about it last week, but we've been chugging along. The The energy is, is, is high and mighty. It is. <laughs> we got our storyboard finished uh, over this past weekend, did some costume fittings. I did a bit of prop shopping, actually. Very I, uh, I bought a bunch of fidget toys, Zeke. Oh. So what what could that do with the story? You're just gonna have to wait and find out. Now, last I checked, um, well, first off, the I'm um, really the Indiegogo campaign is out, and people can donate if they so please. We got five hundred dollars in the first twenty four hours, which was very very awesome to see. And I think last I checked, it was at six fifty. 
um, which is great. That's going to help tremendously with mm. buying props and costumes, helping pay crew, pay for food for the night, all of that, you know, jazz, shabam. Yeah. So uh, it's all very exciting. I think two weeks from now, so I guess episode 210, we would have shot the majority of the film. Very exciting. Which is very exciting. Yeah, yeah no, I happening. think it's going to be awesome. So, yeah, if you want to support this film, it's a really good opportunity to get involved with the film process because every donation is just as important as being there on the set um, and actually making the film. So mm-hmm. if you want to take that opportunity, you just go to Skin and Blister on Indiegogo or you can go to the Skin and Blister short film Facebook page. Yes, I think I think the Indiegogo is, is Skin and Blister short film mm-hmm. and then Facebook is just skin and blister there we go um, but there's constant updates i'm constantly posting photos and and this morning the first uh exclusive email went out to our contributors so if you contribute at the ten dollar or higher level you will get exclusive looks at behind the scenes so those things i described the storyboard and the costuming and all that stuff you'll be able to see a little bit of that in the email and once we've shot the film you're probably going to get a, a plethora of behind-the-scenes looks before yeah. the film finishes. So, so. Really golden opportunity yeah. to get on there and, and support. Excellent. So, there we go. Well, Jake, it is time for us to move into our film of the week, the finale of season four. <laughs> we're going out with some noise. Jake, what are we this watching? Is, uh, we're going out not with a bang, but <laughs> with a whimper. But <laughs> with our white noise. This week's on the show, Zeke, we're watching Noah Bombach's White Noise. Okay, roll film. Would you like that a protein? That stuff causes cancer in laboratory animals, in case you didn't know. Either I chew gum or I smoke. What are these children, yours? That's mine from Wives 1 and 3. There's Babette's from Husband 2. Wilder is ours. We're each other's fourth. Life is good, Jack. I hope it lasts forever. Let's watch a sitcom or something. No! They're calling it the airborne toxic event. We won't come this way. Will we have to leave our home? Of course not. How do you know? I just know. Okay, what if it's dangerous? Evacuate all places of residence. We have a situation. All we have to do is stay out of the way. They're passing us, Dad. Technically, that's illegal. <laughs> Jack Gladney, professor of Hitler studies at the College on the Hill, husband to Babette and father to four children slash stepchildren, is torn asunder by a chemical spill from a rail car that releases an airborne toxic event, forcing Jack to confront his biggest fear, his own mortality. There's a lot going on in that. Log line. It reminds me of I um I lost the letterbox review. I, I don't I don't see who initially said it, so I apologize for stealing um stealing your review, but I read someone who said this is what happens when you just click the middle suggestion in your phone to create a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the story that forms. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's so good. Oh, I apologize to It's who, kind of actually how the that. the whole film feels. Well, it's interesting that's how it feels because, like we mentioned, it's his first, like, true adaptation 
in terms of him writing and directing. So it is, there is a source material this is based on. And as far as I'm aware, this is fairly um, fairly accurate to the source material. It doesn't, yeah. Which in terms of its pacing, I guess, makes sense. It does feel very novelistic in its pacing. Um, that's just a nice way of saying it's a very long film. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that's, that is definitely a way of saying it. I think this film is really interesting because at its core, really, all it is is it just feels like a midlife crisis film. Um, It feels, it centers around two characters that basically take nearly two hours to come to the conclusion that they're having a little bit of a midlife crisis. Um, (laughs) And it's just inundated with stuff on top of it that hides that notion. Mm. But, I mean, you tell me otherwise, is, is that... Is there anything from this film that doesn't pull to that point that it pretty much takes nearly two hours to reveal? This really is just a marital midlife crisis movie. That's, yeah, it's... Uh, it's <laughs> hidden through giant monologues and um, icon- iconisms and hmm. chemical spills <laughs> and a lot of very random characters. Yeah, look, I mean, I mean, my sort of initial takeaway was this would be a perfect double feature with Nope, because like like I talked about with Nope earlier, it feels like just a jumbled collection of ideas, mostly you know run, uh, surrounding society's fascination with like catastrophe and and like as Nope puts it, bad miracles and and it, it generally just felt very similar to Nope in that sense and and for yeah. uh, for a good while. I was actually watching this film thinking this film's doing it better than Nope did. But, and like I, I could kind of sense that feeling of, okay, that there's quite a lot that this film is doing. It is, uh, this is the thing with Noah Baumbach, who we, we sort of associate with these um, very low-budget, mumblecore films. I mean, Francis Ha, we both really love that film. But then you give someone like him $100 million, and that's how much this film costs, $100 million which is, that's a lot of money. And, you know, it kind of has the, the Edgar's, um, the Edgar's Northman effect where he got given, I think it was a very similar amount of money to make that film. And and while that translation makes sense, he's someone that made these sort of ethereal, uh, uncomfortable horror films. And now he's given a budget to an epic Viking film. It's like, what on earth is Noah Bombard going to do with a hundred million dollars? Yeah, and I, I I do believe that Eggers Northman mm. is a significantly better film than White Noise is. Right. Um, I think it's a very solid film. It doesn't hit the same heights as The Lighthouse, but um, sure. It's but a, it, in terms of when you think of that director and you think about him getting that much money, you kind of see. You could see what he does with that money. You can see how that translates. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what threw me off with this film. It's like, this is such an anti-Noah Bombach film. Yeah. And not that that's a negative, necessarily. I mean, you got films like, you know, Starlet that um, that Sean Baker made and uh, First Man that Damien Chazelle made. you got these outliers in directors' careers. This definitely feels like Noah Bombach's outlier. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's, that, it's that whole joke with the, him taking the money and running, basically. <laughs> where did the money go? And yeah. I, I don't see $100 million in the film that's presented in front of me. It feels very... Uh, it's interesting, because it's such an interesting film, because it feels like it sometimes has the stylism of a Wes Anderson film um, yes. in an amalgamation with that and, and Bombuk's, uh scripted mumblecore style. But like you said, I think his 
style doesn't require that level of budget. No, and, well, this this doesn't feel like any style at all, in the sense that it, it's interweaving between so many different genres. Because I spent the first twenty minutes of this film analyzing the the intricacy changes, in the sense that oh well, well this isn't really mumblecore. This kind of feels more like a play because everyone's got these witticisms and there's no breathing room. It's always response, response, response. Yeah, even response. the way the camera floats between the living room. Camera's and very busy. Yeah, it cuts quite a lot. Even you you get your one dolly when they when um. Jack and Bobette are walking down the street, but then it's immediately intercut with like close-ups of their hands touching each other. Mm. And everything. It's just really busy, and it, even like the PA fills in the gap at one point when they're in the grocery store. So I'm sort of focusing on that, like, oh, this is an interesting take for Noel Bombach before it just turns into straight-up horror at times. <laughs> and yeah. apparently, this film's billed as a comedy, which I didn't get that. Yeah, I didn't find much very funny. I mean, the the one joke I could identify in the whole film was when he's, like, readjusting the lamplight. I'm like, that's just a Bojack joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the one joke um, I could think no, of. No, I, I do think this film tries to be funny quite a bit. I think the okay. the the interaction when he finds out he, he he's, in, like, inhaled this toxic event and that conversation right. between the simulator and... The, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there feels like there's those ironic monologues in there that are trying to be kind of humorous, but it doesn't really hit. Mm. Um, it Like it would in such, say, a Wes Anderson film or sure. or even um, even some Bombok films, like what he does in Francis Ha. There are moments in that that are quite funny. But it's more out of the the characters and the scenario, like not the yeah. scenarios they're in, but just the characters' charisma. Yeah. Um, I think this film's just a bit of a head scratch to me. It's a bit of a mm. mess. Um, it it's exhausting. You know, we're talking about with everything, everywhere, all at once being exhausting because mm. there's just it's so busy. This film feels exhausting because. It's just a lot of characters talking about really nothing most mm. of the time. It's, it feels like every character's on some form of medication that elevates their speech to 130, 140%. <laughs> um, and I guess that's that's part of the theme, the white noise theme. Everything becomes just a bit of a blur. Yeah. And only in the moments where the, the film takes on those horror elements do we get these pure quiet parts. Or, um, But I found myself... At, at its to be blunt, I found myself exhausted and bored mm. most of the time yeah. because the film didn't intrigue me at all with the notions it was trying to put forward. I think it's really I, I found myself way more invested in Nope because you are right. that's a great pickup. I think these films follow very similar sort of the fear of the unknown, the fear of catastrophe, the yes. fear the the fear of of death in mm. in both. And and yeah, making a spectacle out of sort of suffering, um, or, or of of the others, and I just feel I I honestly feel like that was way more clear in Nope, I mm. think, than it was in this film, because yeah. this film just has a bunch of characters that are so egotistical, in like their mantras. Adam Driver's character is is beyond. Um, uh, everyone only cares really about themselves and it doesn't feel like there's any love or affection, which makes the, the climax of the film feel weird and a little well, odd. It's funny because I feel um, like the, the very opening scenes, I felt there was quite a lot of love between the characters and in particular. You got the scene where 
where they're in bed together and they're talking about well they're sort of uh, they're like oh well how do you want to be pleasured no how do you want to be pleasured there's, a, there's sort of a humorous back and forth there but then they're both talking about you know they want to die first so the other can live on a whole new life and there's a very selfless almost honeymoon phase love going on between mm. the two there i actually picked up on that very quickly but to your point it does sort of get lost in the shuffle of of all of this you know catastrophe going on and and I think there are there are, this is, again the reason I compare it to Nope, and I, I do I do agree. I think Nope is as much as I think that that is a bit of a messy film and it doesn't gel its ideas all perfectly. It's certainly more focused than this film, and not because this film is going from genre to genre. I don't mind that necessarily, but you know you got these ideas of like you said the unknowable um, misinformation and the fact that there are characters that just sort of come out of nowhere and and like. Oh, if you've been in here for ten seconds, then you're infected and you're gonna die. And then another character comes out of nowhere and is like, "No, no, no, this is the truth." And it's like, I thought they were really trying to tell something with this—the idea of misinformation and people just sort of sporadically reacting mm. to this this unknowable thing. But then it reaches that midpoint, and then the tone completely—it it skips time at that midpoint. It is very bizarre when, yeah, when you jump to, yeah, to part three, and it's like, oh, it, it's over. Yeah. And I think I think what the film was trying to do. I'll give it credit here, and again, there's a lot of fluff in there if this is really the idea, because ultimately it goes back to the pills, you know, that Bobette is... Is it Bobette? Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Bobette. Yeah, Bobette's a lot of extra letters in there. <laughs> but I, I think because a lot of it does go back to the, the pills that she is taking and, and like the effect that that's having on her and her brain and her body. Um, to me, it almost felt like it was making a commentary on how these big... You know, these big scope catastrophes are the things that we focus on that we don't notice, you know, the little things that actually do deteriorate a person. I thought that was sort of the visual contradiction they were making there, where it's like this little pill is actually more dangerous to us than, you know, the big giant thunderous cloud in the sky. I thought that was the idea that Noel Bombach was going for in terms of the visual storytelling. Mm. But I think there's just way too much noise, and we're going to keep using that word, ironically, noise, surrounding that, that I just, I struggle to think that that's really the point he was trying to make. Yeah. Because it just, it goes down an even deeper rabbit hole with, you know, him tracking down the guy that gave her the pills, and it just turns into this big, like, concocted plot that just felt so out of place from what the film was establishing earlier, which was, mm. like, this nice build-up into this, you know, there's, there's this subtle fear of death among the characters, and then we're now we're faced with this big cloud in the sky that's very dangerous and there's all this fear among people of what's going to happen and people getting ran over and blood going down the cars and this idea of where we, we're glued to this disaster. It's all there. But by the time you get to the second hour of the movie and they're in this little hotel room, you're like, what is going on? It's weird, It isn't loses it? the plot, I it feel It does. Like. I 100% agree. I think that midpoint really signifies... The, the the end of the film or the end mm. of the film that you probably would have rather watched because the second half of the film is is flat at the mm. best of times and you end up asking yourself a, a lot why like I find like the the what why feeling <laughs> yeah. covers the second half of the film you know you got you got Don Cheadle handing him this little pocket gun yeah and it's about taking someone's life so. You figure, oh, when he finds out of of Babette's um, affair with this yes. with this drug dealer, Mr. That, Gray, that it takes this very, <laughs> um, 
it's going to go this very traditional route. And, and I just find the final act, this big climax you've been building to is mm. so lame and contrived. And I'm, I'm going to, for me, it, at times it did have the same sort of vibe of like a net where there's this waffly, there's, there's mumblecore, mm. but mumblecore I always feel is, is driven conversations, which you see a little bit of it in, in Gerwig's Little Women, you see it in Francis Ha, you see it in Marriage Story. Mm. That conversation where they're talking about G- Grey as a conglomerate or an individual person mm. when, when Babette is infuriating and waffly and doesn't need to be... It's, for me, I, I was finding myself getting frustrated at the film because right. it just was almost felt very self-aggrandizing in its in its demeanor like they've created this whole subgenre and they're like going full auteur with that and maybe right. this is like you said maybe it's the case of a of a director being given too much money or no limitations that they've kind of got like what i could call the ridley scott syndrome where they've gone look at <laughs> i'm a big fancy auteur look at me go um mm. I found this film very frustrating and I find the climactic scene that went on for 25 minutes before something actually happened <laughs> infuriating. And I find mm. for me, it's, and it doesn't even, you know, I take something like I can, and I'm going to give full credit to Ryan Johnson's glass onion, mm. though. I thought some of the, the plot twists were very contrived and he's come out and said some of those weren't even his ideas like the, the really the, i think he said that uh, the sister wasn't like the um okay the twin sister idea wasn't his original idea for the plot so i think that might have been producers having a hand in it that's bizarre yeah i remember i, I read a thing where he said like he when he introduced that idea i don't want to spoil it for anyone for people who haven't seen glass on yet but I remember him being like, oh, when, when I came up with that idea, I was like, I know some people are going to lynch me for this. Yeah, maybe that was more so, along that line. Yeah, but that, that doesn't seem like something the, he would just take on, because that changes the entire narrative of the film. Yeah, I, a, I think yeah, for I me, it. but what I like about that film, at least, is it didn't feel like there's there's a lot of ego from the director coming through. It definitely just feels like a cohesive, easy-to-follow and reasonably engageable narrative, whereas this film just felt like, waffle most of the time and and like you said it's billed as a comedy but it really doesn't hit that aspect and i don't even know what this mm. film is in the second half it, apart from at, at its core what i got was yeah like that midlife crisis feeling that fear of death <laughs> vibe and you, you're probably right you probably have hit the nail on the head of what at least is trying to be achieved with it's the small it's the interpersonal relationships that can have a greater effect on right. one's mortality than these big macro events. And I think that comes yeah. through with Cheadle's address about car crashes. And yeah, it's in the a great way to open part, the film. Yeah. Where it's, you know, the fascination of the instant uh, tragedy over then the elongated uh, mortality. And, and Yeah. Well, this, this idea of like, you know, dropping any sense of like thinking and thought provoking discussion in order just to have like, the satisfying moment of it, like a car crashing into another car and just that discussion. I, I don't think that's the film's way of sort of throwing out any deep thoughts that it's trying to negate or anything. But again, you're right. It goes back to that wider theme of our fascination with big catastrophes, bad uh, miracles and, and all of that. But 
this whole second half of the film or like everything that takes place because you got what parts one two and three mm. which are essentially before during and after this airborne toxic event which i f- i the more i think about it, i just kind of wanted this film to be more serious and more disastrous i wanted it to be the happening but like a good version of the happening mm. <laughs> and i don't know i just found myself incredibly not bored that's not the word i would use but just i couldn't really care too much about everything that happened afterwards because you're right there is that jarring transition where oh and everything's fine again we're back to normalcy and there's the whole thing about the synchronicity of the the patrons in the grocery store and all moving in unison and how this is the the whole grocery store is is representative of i can't even remember Mm. (laughs) they were ready they were just gearing up for that dance number in the in the post credit sequence that's it i know they wanted to pull a slumdog millionaire with it (laughs) with that ending so weird uh which yeah maybe maybe that was his little shout out to fantastic mr fox i'm not too sure yeah (laughs) i think there there's elements there of like that wes anderson sort of like characters just expressing how they feel through how they speak Mm-hmm but obviously done with about 30 million more words. Um, I, I don't know. I, fa- I found myself really trying to find a, a, a soul or a source in of this film, um, something to take away from it, but I've, I found myself not really gaining anything from it. Mm. Um, uh, I thought that there were character traits, like Cheadle really wanting to get that Elvis paper written or right. that class going... Have you ever thought about the thing that binds Elvis and Hitler together <laughs> before this film? <laughs> no. And but and it's like, look, that's a really good scene, but then what mm. what residual does that scene have on the greater story? Sure. Or is it just two characters uh, egotistically monologuing their intelligence? Yeah. Um, <laughs> of their topics, and then there's that irony there that he doesn't know how to speak German. Yeah. Like, I understand. Which that. I guess kind of comes back at the the hospital at the end, or that like emergency church thing, yeah, which just comes out of nowhere and mm. because movie, and then it's like <laughs> oh, talking about this big seminar where he has to speak at it, and then it being no more than like a monologue on in in the the context of the film. It really has no. Yeah, that's a good point because he goes on this whole thing. He's literally outlining like, this is my goal in terms of this seminar and this is how much time I have to do it and this is why I'm nervous about it. And I was like, oh, this is really weird. They're just like straight up outlining what I guess the character arc would be. I I knew it was going to lead into more of a disaster film, so I wasn't taking too much note of it. Hmm. But you're right. It's like, why have it so blatant and then it have nothing to do with anything yeah. Overall, like unless that's meant to be a connective tissue but, to his overall it's, fear it's of death. It's interesting, you know. You're talking about like I think you might have hit the consensus, or at least the goal of the film is this, like it's the silent killers. It's the yes. it's yeah, being yeah, given yeah. this toxic exposure, so it's going to kill him at some point, according mm. to this one uh, computer, right. and um, or it's the character that has a fear of death, but because they have a fear of death, like that's the the reason there's no she's just afraid of dying so she takes these pills and Mm. i i ends up being like okay what was the point of him being a hitler specialist really yeah well i was actually gonna ask you about like what do you think is that connective tissue other than 
Because I think the thing that does combine Elvis and Hitler, despite the joke I made, is you know the 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 gazing crowd, and that is what a lot of their monologues about is yeah. about having that crowd, um, which again feels like I can kind of see the idea. I don't know how it perfectly ties into fear of death. It's, it's interesting though because then it, where's the gazing crowd in in this tragedy that's happening? So because mm. he never loses that power or it never gets exploited or used against him, mm. you know, there, when no one finds out about the affair Babette's having. So it's not like the community's, like, gossiping about their... Sure. Um, and these are two characters that have been married, like, multiple times each. So mm. they're, they're, they're very... It's a very perplexing sort of consensus. Like, no one's watching their tragedy unfold or anything like that. So that notion of... of of that fear it doesn't really happen it just feels like an idea that that wasn't explored or tethered into the rest of the film yeah where at least i can say that that thread is exploited Mm. or explored quite clearly in nope like i can follow that narrative steven yoon's character is the perfect bridge of that in in all three acts um and you know obviously the final act in nope very much just becomes an action thriller sure but at least i'm like oh well, that was, i felt like that was a cohesive narrative whereas like you yes. said this is a before event on the event happens and then it's done and there's really no residual of it life moves on but mm. then it becomes this like i said this weird crisis of character I, I honestly that final scene where he's talking to mr gray prior to shooting him i don't even know what that topic what they were talking about was about <laughs> They just kept saying death. I'm not or... going to lie. That is the scene when I just turned the subtitles on. I was like, I'm not retaining enough of this information or what's being discussed yeah. here. Because was... at that point, it just feels so repetitive, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, you know, and when he finally shoots him and fails to kill him, and then they have that very, like I said, that almost Wes Anderson interaction where it's like, why are you here? Because men do, men kill people. And it's like mm. very flat line delivered. But it doesn't have the the same effect as it does in a Wes Anderson film. Um, that's even even like him s- getting shot like through the like skates through the arm and then her through the leg or vice versa, whichever it was. Yeah, it's just like I don't know. Like sometimes I just don't see the point in a lot of those actions. Like sometimes it's for comedic effect or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that was more for comedic effect. Like okay. their reaction was like, "But but you've been shot." Like yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. okay. And it's such a shame as well because especially in that whole like third chunk of the film, it really does feel like the whole second half, doesn't it? Actually, I didn't look at the time codes or anything. But, you know, when when she admits to this affair and, and the drug and everything that's going on and they're both sort of in bed and she's so guilt-ridden and crying and then he's crying even though he's like kissing her but just can't... He's also sickened by what she's done and like that array of emotions, like their performances both are so good. Yeah. And it's such a shame that I'm just like struggling to to connect. Yeah. Because the film is just take it feels like it's taken such a detour tonally. Yeah. And in terms of like which parts of the narrative I'm really meant to be focusing on because someone's getting dropped like a hat. Uh, yeah, and so like, let's look at let's look at a marriage story, right? And I think the film deeply benefits from having this really strong quartet cast, but predominantly obviously being Scarlett Johansson and, and Adam Driver, but it's such a simple film. Mm. It's a film just following the intricacies of divorce and yeah. separation. And 
what I find so good about that film is it, that's using mumblecore to um, to its advantage. These big long deliveries and monologue because the the backdrops are simple, the stakes are the stakes are simple. They're high, but they're simple and easy to understand. Whereas this this film ironically gets I feel like its message get lost in that white noise of everything happening because mm. it's either trying to be funny or so when it has those really deep emotional points that's uh hindered by how long the the dialogue is and the performances are still coming across strong but like like you said it's it's tough to be invested because these characters have been so up until this point they've been very they've been a part of almost the background of mm. this 1983 Ohio because all they do is they just live their lives and, and talk about their lives. So when this event happens, they're no different to everyone else um, experiencing this event. Um, which, which is fine because it's like they're a small part of this larger catastrophe. Yeah. And just like any other family, they don't know how to react. Should they be scared? Should they be worried? Or you know, should they be passive about it? And I, and I think it actually is both interesting and also makes a lot of sense that, that Jack is the character who's like the one dismissing the importance of this, you know, train wreckage the most, because that means he's the character that has the most to lose and the the, the deepest path to insanity. Mm. And that whole stretch of film from, you know, that you, we talk about Wes Anderson a lot. That felt like a that felt like a homage when it like did the crash zoom into the binoculars. Mm. Um, there's a few other random references I noticed. Like it, it felt very National Lampoon esque when they're in the car on the river and trying to get out so i guess i get yeah, the it's comedic so weird. There's, uh, yeah there's but... weird moments like that they just kind of don't amount to any this doesn't have to be like this super intricate script where like every line of dialogue you know relates back to this thing that happens in the narrative it doesn't need to be that kind of story yeah but just like... looking back it's like there's just a lot of for a two hour 15 minute film that has a a, a series of very messy messages and themes it felt like they, they, this could have been chiseled, chiseled... And I don't say this about a lot of films. This should have been chiseled down to, like, an hour 40. I don't know if that would have fixed anything, though. Well, yeah. I think it would have helped sort of focus... It, you would still have that tone of whiplash between part one, two, and three. But I think if you cut out a lot of that stuff, like them sort of just rolling... I mean, there's, like, a family dynamic occurring there, but, you know, in terms of the wider, deep themes the well, film's talking but, about, yeah. fear of death, like... The family, it's so comedic. Yeah, and the family dynamic has no residual on the story, really. Mm. His the relationship Babette and um, Jack have with uh, with the kids with the kids is kind of irrelevant, apart from one of them being the one to discover the pills. But the rest right. of them, essentially, they're just their kids, and they talk about their their existence is defined by their kids, but. They don't really have resi- like a residual effect on the plot. I mean, they're not even in the last thirty-five minutes of the film. Yeah, for for a film that starts with such a sort of fun, kooky introduction to the family, and like mm. you know, specifying that which kids is whom, and the fact that only one of them is actually you know birthed to the both of them as parents, and like you said, they sort of set up this wacky family dynamic, and and there is a dynamic there, but it is interesting, and I found it all fascinating when they're in the car and. Especially um, Henrich, who's sort of the biggest conspiracy theory, and he's talking about how all these things relate to each other and what they should and shouldn't be doing. And he's the one that gets him out of the jam when he says to cut the engine in the river mm. and then when to start it again. Like, I, I find that all very interesting and fun. 
But like you said, by the time you get to that hotel room with Mr. Grey and, and there's gunfire and it's like that just feels so removed from what the rest of the yeah. film was setting up that it just, yeah, I don't know. It it really threw me off. I'm not going to lie. Like I said, the actual, the genre shifting and changing from, you know, horror film. And I actually think the, the, the nightmare scene where he first sees like the figure of Mr. Grey coming in and out of the shadow and lying in bed and like, the face figure coming through the, the thing, like, a you know, Nightmare on Elm Street. Mm. Like, there's a lot of great horror elements in there. And when he's, you know, when he wakes up and moves the thing, you only see a bit of Burbett's hair. And there's, like, a, there's no jump scare there, but that moment where you don't see a face is freaking you out. Mm. There's some great horror stuff. I would love to see Noel Bumbach do it. just straight-up horror film after seeing that scene. And then even, like, the foreboding nature of the truck before we see it, you know, crash into the train... There's great stuff in there, yeah. and then how that turns into like a big monster Spielbergian spectacle, and like that stuff didn't bother me as much as just like the script. And again, this is meant to be a fairly faithful adaptation to the book, so I'm wondering if the book sort of gets that tone more mm. more streamlined and correct, or the, there were certain things omitted or added that sort of messied that train of thought. I think for me, like you said, I kind of walked away with a whole lot of nothing. And and I really had to say because I think Noel Bombach's a great director. I'm really looking forward to the Barbie film that he co-wrote with Greta, of course, and she's directing. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I just this film was just big. I hope he enjoyed that. his paycheck. <laughs> well, I generally think you're onto something. Like, yeah, the, there's some pretty big. I mean, the the dolly crane shots and the, and the number of shots where there's just these long long stretches of cars trapped on the highway. It goes like those shots would have been cheap. But, that being said, I feel like a lot of the budget did just go to, like, oh, I can give my wife a really big paycheck on this film. <laughs> oh, I can give, give my Adam, mate Adam give, Driver yeah. a big paycheck for this. It's been a while since his last Star Wars movie. We should give him a really big paycheck. I am generally wonder if that's where a lot of the money went to. Is it to give these actors, who would have done the film... Anyway. They would have done it far it's, less money. But. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that there is... Uh, to be fair, Adam Sandler's been doing it for like 20 years with his buddies. That is, so. that is true. That is true. So, yeah, look, I, I'm... As a capitalist, you should appreciate it. I know, I should. <laughs> As it, would, would I have been happy to be involved in the making of White Noise? Absolutely. If, you know, depending on the paycheck. Yeah. Absolutely. Right, yeah, well, they've got $100 million. I'm sure they can throw you the five grand you need for your film. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> just, just donate to Skin and Blister. Just do it. There you go. Put that Netflix money. Well, Jake, what mm. was your highlight scene? My highlight scene, and you actually mentioned it a bit earlier, is the overlapping monologue between Jack and Murray. And, and the reason specifically okay. for this is I just want to acknowledge how difficult it would have been to do that overlapping dialogue. To... First off, record it cleanly, but then to cut around it and then to sound mix it back in because they're both, you would imagine, between takes, just slightly different timings on their on their model, unless they were super, super robotic about it. And like, you know, when when, when um, Adam Driver hits this note, Don Cheadle was going to hit this note, and if they were just super careful about it, um, and then in editing it was just a breeze to put together, or if, if it was a nightmare, and like every take they had different timings... Mm. So I want to acknowledge that that's a very difficult thing to do, is that overlapping dialogue in that scene. So that that's probably my highlight yeah, scene. It'd be mine too. Okay. Yeah, I think it's the scene that you know it's a great scene of flow and mm. such. I'd probably if I had to pick another one the the sequence 
as the event escalates in the house at the dining room table. Right. As soon as the chicken gets served. <laughs> is quite a good balance of, of in, like, that sort of secondhand communication. Yeah. The changing of recommendations, of how you should handle the event as the event unfolds. That was a good sequence. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'll probably talk about that one. Both in the first half of the film, no surprise there. Yeah, no, I think I think that that part I enjoyed part one. I was really liking where part two was going, and then and the the film kind of nosed die for me mm. in that third part. But it is what it is. Another shout out to Jordan Peele. There is one shot towards the end there where they use the uh, the dofer effect or the dofer um, split dofer effect. Sorry, where they have sort of two focal ranges in the one frame with Mister Gray and Adam Driver in the background. Very Usk type of shot. All right. Well, White Noise is currently out on Netflix near you. In your room. <laughs> a Netflix near you. In in your room. Uh, Very speaking near. of streaming platforms, Jack, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? Coming to Netflix, you got a documentary on the viral sensation turned murderer, the hatchet-wielding hitchhiker. Have you heard about this guy? I saw the uh, little preview. Oh, there you but, go. No, have you? No, not until not until yeah, I watched the preview. This probably the same preview you did, and yeah. very intriguing. Yeah, is it a series or is it? Just I a... think it's a feature. I oh, think it's good. a feature documentary. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. You also got Dog Gone, which sees a fractured father-son relationship repaired while hiking to find their lost dog. It sounds sounds very meaningful, doesn't it? Zeke? That sounds cute. Yeah. Now, like I said, the menu is coming to Disney Plus this week. I'm excited to finally catch it. I've heard mm. nothing but good things from everyone, mm. including you, Zeke. Enjoy your nine-course meal. I will. And the Harry Potter series, all eight films come to Stan this week as well. If you've never seen those films and <laughs> decide you want to now. And coming to cinemas this week, we actually got one film for, for each place. If oh. you want to go to Hoyt's this week, Zeke, you can watch Megan, which is a lifelike doll programmed to be the child's perfect companion, take things to a violent extreme. That, that doll is like the creepiest doll. <laughs> I've seen. It's it's like the Annabelle one's just like laughable. No, because like Chucky and Annabelle were funny because they're so just dolls that no real normal person would get. <laughs> and then this Megan one comes out and I'm like, who would buy that? It's so cr- anatomically correct and creepy looking. The big eyes. Like, oh, it's just the... And she's doing the dances as well. Yeah. That's what I'm excited for. I can't wait it's for... It's got the- pretty good ratings. Like, Is it really? Yeah, a good sound. Okay. A sound score. Right. I don't know. If you're into that stuff, I, dolls are creepy. No yeah, creepy. I think the only way I'm seeing this is if, like, a friend wants to drag me to it, like, yeah. for as a meme. Yeah. But, um, I mean, for the... I can't wait to see the Letterbox 2023 wrap-up video where it's, like, the the montage of everyone dancing, <laughs> which I love. I love... Because I feel like dancing in film... You know, it's a, it's a visual poetic language dancing. Yeah, and I and I think watching those like letterbox compilations of just every dance in every film in the past year, the, the fact that the Wednesday dance yeah. exploded, absolutely exploded. Um, it's the Pennywise dance. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one as well. Like I think I think dancing, we should try and get as many dances as we can in our films. There's no dance in Skin and Blister, or no. maybe we can work one in at the last second. <laughs> just in the rain. <laughs> I'm singing, like. dancing in the rain. If you want to go to Luna this week, you can catch Decision to Leave, Park John Wook's Palm Dior nominated detective story in which a detective develops feelings for the dead man's wife. Oof. Um, heard this is excellent. And this is, I, I think it's been coming in like dribs and drabs, but I think Luna are finally playing it wide this week. And finally, at Palace, 
you got the Triangle of Sadness, which sees Woody Harrelson as the captain of a cruise for the super rich. It's meant to be very funny. Oh, okay. So, and I've heard a lot of good things about that as well. I think there was also... That won something. That might have won the Golden Lion, if I'm not correct. A Woody Allen film. If I'm film. not mistaken. In... Woody, oh, Woody Harrison. Oh, Woody Harrison. Did I say Alan? You said Alan. Oh, no. Woody Harrison. So what's it called? Triangle of Sadness. Triangle of Sadness. That's at Palace later this week. It's just tough, especially like just these next couple of weeks working on the film. It's going to be tough to to head to the cinemas, but you know what is exciting, Zeke? What is exciting? Is that we're going to be heading to the cinema for next week's film. Yes. Our first film... For season five, there you go. Of Can the you Cinema Sideshow podcast. That's right. We did get renewed. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. got renewed by the network. Merch is coming eventually. Fifth year now. Let's <laughs> let's, let's make it happen. Get oh, your beautiful Cinema Sideshow shirts. Yeah, very exciting. They come well, with a fifty dollars skin and blister donation. <laughs> there you go. Just just get on it. Just get on, it, guys. Yeah. Better hurry up. But Zeke, you might not be heading to the cinemas for this film. Or you, we already have, actually. Mm. In fact, you've mentioned this film earlier in the show. I did. <laughs> With high praise. I did. I did. Jake, what are we watching? Next week in the show, Zeke, we're watching The Fablemans. That you never forget Sammy? to change how everything looks it's hard to find our house ours is the dark house with no lights in this family it's the scientists versus the artists sammy's on my team takes after me what he does it's playful or imaginative you could afford to be a little encouraging she should have been a concert piano player what she got in her heart is what you got you can't just love something you also have to take care of it it's more important than your hobby can you stop calling it a hobby mom got a monkey why'd you get a monkey because i needed a laugh Always have to be the center of attention. Stop shouting at her! That has been nothing but disrespect from you. I'm your mother. Family, art, it'll tear you in two. You stop making movies, it'll break your mother's heart. I don't know what to do anymore. You do what your heart says you have to. was your favorite part young sanny fableman falls in love with movies after his parents take him to see the greatest show on earth and armed with a camera he begins making home films much to the delight of his supportive mother now zeke you said just earlier in the mm. show this might be your favorite film of the last year 
the real question is how many nominations is this film going to get in the next in the coming weeks yeah. question i think we're looking at at least five nominations for this film for for oscars yeah i reckon we'll get more than that probably will i probably could get seven there's, there's usually one or two films that crack like that 10 11 phase oh, i don't the oh. thing is like I haven't heard, like, a lot of buzz about this. Like, I've heard it's excellent and people really enjoy it. You know, this is a great Spielberg film, the story he was born to tell. But I haven't heard, like, the same buzz around it as, like... I'm trying to think of another film that came out that Like, I mean, The Menu. I don't think it has, like, you know, 11 Oscar non-buzz. But The Menu just has a really great word of mouth. Yeah, but The Menu is one of those films that I think maybe... It's... When you go and and we'll talk about it next week with the fans, sure. but it, it's one of those films. You yeah, it really is just. It just feels like it. It's the perfect bookend to Spielberg's career. Mm. Not that this will be the last film, but it's sure. the same consensus we had with our previous Golden Chalk Top winner, The Father. Yep. With Anthony Hopkins, we went. He doesn't have to make another film ever again. Mm. That's that's that is a perfect final film. Yeah. He will make other films. But it's nice having a career-defining film this late in the career. This late into your career, yeah. Um, you know, Hopkins was what 80, 83 when the father came out, and Spielberg's now in his late seventies. So, and we just talked about Scorsese turning eighty-two, and very much the Irishman sits in that catalogue for Scorsese. Not two yeah, years ago, sure. Um, that that being very intentionally sort of a final footnote on the relationship he had with those actors as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a fantastic film. Can't wait to talk about it. Mm. Until then, Jake, for the final time in season four, <laughs> thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans.